Wow, look at you gallivanting in here. You're welcome. What was that? You're welcome. With Hillary Rushford. Say it again. You're welcome. In advance. Hello, beautiful friend. Happy COVID aha day. I don't know about you, but uh, my COVID aha day was on a Wednesday. I believe it was March 11th this year. Wednesday is March 10th, but um, I very distinctly remember the way that my week went and the things that led to the moment where the penny dropped of, oh, wait, this is a thing, a thing. (laughs) This is affecting us. This is happening to us. This isn't just something that is um, happening abroad. And as we've been coming up to this anniversary, I expected myself to be more into reminiscing, into sort of tracking every day, okay, here's where we were and we were doing this and now this time. And I'm kind of not. Like that's what I expected in January and February as we approach this, that I would be so acutely aware every day and I would find enjoyment in reflecting back on where we were. And I'm not sure if it's because it was all – pretty traumatic, even for those of us that were very blessed throughout it as I was. And maybe it just feels heavy to think about it. And so my brain's kind of like, well, that's sort of interesting, but doesn't really feel that best, the best. So let's just focus on something else. And I also think that it feels less like, remember when dot, 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 when we're still in it. And I'm still faced with, oh, this friend wants to meet up and casually mentioned like, hey, I'm coming to the city and when you're back, we should grab coffee. And that my brain is like, would we be able to sit six feet apart and will it be too cold to sit outside? And I go right into these logistics. And so I think there is still very much that – we're still in this. We're not looking back. We can look back at the beginning of it, but it's not something far away. We're still in it. So anyways, coincidentally, we were in Mexico when it broke out. And as we've met, we are transitioning back into New York City from Mexico. It would also feel like this bookend of being at Mexico at these exact same times. But I just feel zero connection. (laughs) There's zero relation. I mean, we are in different cities, so it's not that we were back at the exact place where we have all those memories, but I'm just in such a different emotional place. I don't at all relate. I feel like the reasons and the, the vibe and the energy of being in Mexico last March just feels nothing like our thought process and our energy and our priorities in being here now. So anyways, I hope that it has inspired you to follow along in these months while we've been living in Mexico and just to consider your own future plans. We've had so many conversations over on Instagram stories about just thinking outside the box, reevaluating what matters most to you, making sure that you don't have a ceiling on what is possible or what is acceptable. And that does not mean that anyone needs to move, um, but just in how you curate your life. You might be in the exact same home, but perhaps have been inspired to rethink your priorities and what you value. And in a macro way, in a big picture, that might be moving to a foreign country like we may someday, but the micro ways are just as important. So you may have been observing 
my macro thoughts on what if we leave our home in New York City? It's the only home I've ever known as an adult. What if we move to a foreign country? But the same questions show up in our everyday decisions of the small ways that we live our daily life. And that adds up to making just as big of a difference, even though on the surface, it seems like a huge difference when you are going to move to a foreign country. Visually, everyone can see that it's different and it feels like this huge epic thing. But really, it's just a big life shift and we can add up all those tiny life shifts to really have our life feel so differently than it did a year ago, which I am aware of in this COVID aha anniversary, just how different I feel in the last year. And it was through these small shifts. Yes, COVID was a huge macro once in a lifetime event, let us pray, but it was actually the micro shifts in my life that really made the difference because I was blessed to uh, you know, not lose Well, that's not entirely true. We did lose someone to COVID. But anyways, you get what I'm saying. So one thing that I've started to notice in this micro shift idea that I want to talk about today is my inner dialogue about whether I am punishing or rewarding myself. So I think I first noticed this a good handful of years ago around the concept of food and just noticing my thoughts that... I very much see food as a treat, and I actually think that this may have in part been meeting Jeremy for four and a half years ago, and um, I <laughs> he would want to cook meals, and I which I don't cook, I only do takeout, and um, so he would want to cook, and they would just be very bland meals to me. I'd be like, where there, there's nothing fun on this plate. Like I need a sweet potato. I need mac and cheese. Like just fish and broccoli is not doing it for me. And I realized that I kind of, I'd worked so hard in entrepreneurship. I was always so exhausted and so spread thin that my food at the end of the day was often the the treat. I've had a long, hard day. And just the way that I would think about having a glass of wine or that splurge food or that dessert, there would be this sense of, I deserve this. This is my reward at the end of uh, a hard day. And on the one hand, for me personally, I'm okay with that. I don't think that I need to banish that language, but I just want to notice the story, even if I don't change it. I think the more that we become aware of our inner thoughts Even if the first element of that is not, oh my gosh, that is horrible and I need to change it. Or it's like, you know, interesting that I am having this thought. I'm just going to bring it to my awareness. And in noticing it, I have changed it more so. Not because I set out to be like, Hillary, this is bad. You need to change this thought process. But in being more aware of it, I just started to catch myself with that thought of, I deserve this. And being like, did... Can I simply be like, I would like a glass of wine. The idea of a cocktail sounds fun and delicious. I enjoy pasta and I don't have to have done something to deserve it. Because so often the language is the opposite. Not that I deserve it, but I overate. I need to restrict myself. I I need to punish myself for the fact that 
I am overweight, I have eaten heavy foods, you know, et cetera. And I think that so many of us grew up with that diet culture mentality where there was so much of that. I definitely had that in my early 20s when I was really struggling with my weight and feeling like there there was this constant were you bad yesterday and you're trying to be good today, but you feel guilty and ashamed about the bad yesterday, as opposed to where I am now, it's more of a balance than a punishment. So if I ate really heavy yesterday or during a week at my parents' house, Jeremy and I will both kind of be like, yeah, I feel I'm I feel like I want some lighter stuff. Like, how about we Let's do like no alcohol Monday through Thursday this week or whatever. But it's it feels good. It's the idea of saying to eat lighter this week would feel good as opposed to I need to punish myself because last week I ate bad. And I think that that is such a different subtle shift whether my thoughts around food and my body are punishment or just balance that actually feels good or is it coming because I feel bad. So much of that diet culture mentality was around punishment and restriction. And also so much advertising is around the reward. Notice how often it's like a yogurt commercial or something. And the mentality is, the story is, this girl ran around all day and she was working so hard and she gets home at night and she dives into this delicious raspberry vanilla yogurt and it's low calorie so she doesn't feel bad but she's treating herself that's so much of the stories that we see around our food. And so for me, just reclaiming that narrative and really being like, why do I – actually, Jeremy and I were at a restaurant and um, he – I mentioned that chicken fettuccine is so unappealing to me on a menu. He was like, why is this? You love pasta. And I was like, ugh. Or chicken Alfredo. Yeah, chicken Alfredo fettuccine. Ugh. I just like – it makes me want to like, ugh. And I was like, it's because there was a lean cuisine version of it or one of those like diet freezer dinners that I ate all the time in my early 20s. And I think it's associated with in high school and college, my mom would use that language a lot like a white cream sauce, is, it's going to be very high in calories. And so in general, when I order pasta, when it has a red sauce or a well, more of an olive oil type sauce my brain sees it as healthier. And granted, it it may be healthier, but I'm just aware that that was a thing. It was like white cream pasta was was, was almost naughty, you know? Like it was just a, a woman shouldn't want to consume that many calories. And I'm just aware how much of that narrative we got where if you ate that, it's almost like then you would feel like – and I can hear the language of my mother the next day than if we had eaten that. With this kind of, oh, we all, you know, I really, I really ate badly last night. So I, I, I should eat well today as opposed to, so it's feeling good in my body, the idea of eating healthy today. So the other huge area that I noticed this punishment around is rest. Have I worked hard enough to deserve to be tired? Or am I just lazy? And I should roll my eyes at myself. Like, you got a full night of sleep. Why are you tired? This is pathetic. We don't have time for this. Or have I 
have I put it in and I'm saying to myself, you know what, I'm tired, but you know, I I worked so hard that I deserve to feel this feeling without feeling guilty. Like it's a badge of honor that I made myself tired. Whereas other times I feel tired sometimes, like two o'clock in the afternoon, and I kind of beat myself up. Like, what's wrong with you that you feel tired? You got a good night of sleep. You've had coffee. Like, why would you feel tired? As opposed to being like, well, I don't know, but let's unpack that. Let's journal about it. Let's think about it. Let's really ponder why am I feeling tired? Because if I don't deserve it, it's like I haven't accomplished enough or been enough of a beast in product of productivity to justify this feeling as opposed to whatever I have or haven't done, I'm having this feeling <laughs> that I am tired. And I don't want to punish myself to say, you you don't deserve rest. You haven't been good enough to justify rest. And to me, these thoughts and shifts are so subtle because in terms of when do we give in to them and when do we not? Because if you have not met your deadline at work and you want to binge a TV show, there's a very real time when you want to resist that. That isn't coming because you are tired necessarily um, or it isn't necessarily healthy to indulge that. There are times when it's like, no, the reason you're wanting to binge that TV show is just because you're feeling resistance with a capital R, like universal energy resistance that's like, I'm afraid to hit publish on that thing because I might get criticized. I'm afraid to send that email because maybe I'm not going to get the response that I want. I'm putting off that project because I feel disappointed in myself that it was due a week ago and I'm behind and that is negative energy. So there's times when I want to rest and it's really that I, I'm just wanting a distraction. <laughs> but there's other times when I want to rest and the the war in my head is around this idea of punishment. And, and I think a lot of us need a lot more rest than we give ourselves. I think with having created the Elegant Excellence Goals Journal and speaking so often about productivity and goals and sleep – I'm aware that most of us have way too much on our plate, whether you are an entrepreneur or a stay-at-home mom or you're volunteering at church or people got laid off during COVID, but your company didn't have any less projects, so you're overworking or you're working multiple jobs because you're working to pay down your debt or you're taking care of an aging parent. I mean, all of the things. I think most of us have – I say most of us. I don't know that I've ever been in conversation with someone who – was like, yeah, I've got like all this spacious free time. I think maybe by the time you get to retirement um, for some people, but I think by and large, we need a lot more rest than we give ourselves. And I was having a conversation inside my Elegant Excellence Mastermind around essentialism and, and doing less. And one of the gals said, Hillary, I remember watching your Elegant Excellence course and you said that you sleep eight hours a night. And it was like this huge permission for me to be like, oh my gosh, she sleeps eight hours a night. And I realized I'm telling myself like, I, I can't afford that. I I don't deserve that. I'm not far enough in my business. There's more that I need to do. And that I'm 
I'm stealing those hours from myself because it's like I don't deserve them. And seeing you just calmly say like, so I sleep eight hours a night, maybe be like, wait a minute, that's possible? <laughs> like I, I could not punish myself in that way. And I realized, you know, for me, sleep is just huge. I'm a, I, I was a little bit obsessed with sleep for so many years because I've just always felt like I needed a lot of sleep. I couldn't function without it. And yet in entrepreneurship, I was a little bit obsessed with it in my early years. By early years, I probably mean the first like six or seven um, that I would play that that one to two hour game. Should I set my alarm for one or two hours less because I need to get a little bit more done in in the day. And so it was this constant battle of, I desperately want eight hours, but I don't know if I can afford that. Do I need to sacrifice one or two hours, set the alarm for, you know, seven or eight hours, seven or six hours of sleep because of this place? That, but the narrative under that is a sense of punishment that I didn't get more stuff done. If I have to wake up early to get on a plane flight, that's different. The time of the flight is what it is. And if I have to wake up at 5 a.m. to get there and I was not going to magically fall asleep at 9 o'clock when that's not my normal bedtime, that's not punishment. I'm like, ugh, I hate waking up this early. But there's no narrative there that I did something. It's just like, that's when Delta said the flight was. But when I am losing that one or two hours to wake up for something else, there very often is a narrative of, I'm not working fast enough. I'm not working hard enough. I'm behind. I'm not getting enough done. So I need to steal this very precious and necessary resource for myself in order to feel proud of what I'm doing during the day. Because otherwise, I will be, I will beat myself up that I took the luxury of getting that sleep. And so it comes back to this, these thoughts of, punishing ourselves. And now, really about around the time that I met Jeremy, like that first year or two of us dating, I started to realize, because I had a person that was around more often, I started to realize that I would be exhausted at like six or seven o'clock at night, just being like, I think I got to go to bed now. And he'd be like, what are you talking about? Like this, you're, you're going to wake up in the middle of the night. That's weird. So I would stay up for another few hours. And then when I actually went to go to bed at 10, 11 o'clock at night, I'm wired and I can't sleep. Saw a functional medicine doctor. He diagnosed that I had adrenal fatigue. I worked on a variety of things to heal that. And I think also just having a partner that was much more disciplined about sleep kind of wore off on me. I'd lived uh, by myself for so many years. And sure, you're chatting with friends about their lives, but to have someone you're talking with every single day that's like, okay, I'm going to bed now. <laughs> like, all right, this is what time I'm waking up. It just started to regulate me into a little bit better schedule as opposed to feeling like I was just, you know, oh, I should work so late. I should wake up so early. So I've been better about getting all of these, you know, hours of sleep. But I still wasn't resting very often. I was at the point where I wasn't sacrificing sleep. And I and I talk about that because so many women in that conversation of my mastermind are not giving themselves enough sleep. And so I realize that that is a very big thing that we should address. But for those of us that are, I now am giving myself those eight hours. I, I never set my alarm to wake up to be like, oh, I got to get started. Unless I literally have a early class that I have to teach. You know, the occasional thing that again is about schedule. That doesn't feel like about punishing myself. It's just like, well, this is the time that I have to, you know, to teach today. But 
I still wasn't resting very often. I still was working all throughout my nights and my weekends on Instagram and other things that just, it, it is work, but it's not exactly work, and it just all kind of bleeds over. And I realized that I still had that thought subconsciously that because I always have more to do, I, I just, if I can just push a little bit harder, you know, and you're just constantly chasing that, that end, the, the, the proverbial carrot on the stick that you would never reach. And I started to think how much of that is a subtle thought of punishment. I am, I am disappointed in myself that I'm still behind and I still have so many things on my to-do list that I'm going to keep pushing myself a little bit more. I feel guilty resting when in reality, it's not that I'm not working hard enough. It's that I have said yes to too many things and there are too many things on my plate and therefore I am always going to feel behind because Superwoman could not accomplish all the things that I have set out for myself. And so with COVID really slowing things down even more, I got to a point around April, May, June, July, where I was uh, slowing down. I don't know if you remember on my Instagram stories, I started doing a big marker list on weekends where it was like, okay, we have all weekend. Um, Can't really leave the house and go anywhere. We're in this random Airbnb in in Arizona. Uh, So what what are we going to do? And it would be like, I would just take a, a big marker on a piece of paper and write like, float in the pool, listen to Rob Lowe audiobook, go on a walk. Like it was just like we needed things to like take our time up because somehow I had slowed down, you know, my business in that season. And then it sped up again. Then I overcommitted myself in September, October, November, December, January. And so I was kind of right back to pre-COVID rhythms. But getting that season of slowness made me go, I want that. I want to get to a place where I am bored more often and see what comes up underneath that. And what are the stories about productivity and deservingness and how does it feel to be deeply rested, which isn't just eight hours of sleep. It means nights and weekends and long stretches where I'm not running errands. I'm not crossing things off my to-do list. I'm really just kind of hanging out, like looking at coffee table books or listening to a personal growth um audio book or researching, you know, uh, a topic. And so I've been slower the last few weeks. I, I In February, I was able to get myself back to that place of slowness. And the slower that I get, I crave it even more. But it does mean a lot of conversations with myself around whether I've done enough today, which is really about do I deserve this? And if the answer is no, then it's a punishment. And so when it comes to something so deeply tied to us, like our body, our weight, our food, um, what, what we're eating, or our productivity and accomplishment and goals and rest, like those are two things that I think every single one of us has struggled with, I've started to ask, what if you were the most 
kind, generous, gentle soul to yourself. My friend Ruthie Lindsay has so been modeling this. She's the author of There I Am. And I've been watching her on Instagram. Lately, she speaks so tenderly to herself. And I've heard some people say that it can help to picture someone that you would speak to this way. Like, would you would you speak to your daughter this way? Would you speak to your best friend this way? But the way Ruthie speaks to herself is so much more tender and gentle than I can imagine speaking to someone in my life. Not, not that I wouldn't speak tenderly to them, but oftentimes it's rare that someone in our life brings us like deep pain. You know, we have friends that are like talking about problems and issues and stuff and you're sort of, you're being supportive, you're listening, you're encouraging, you're giving advice. But you, it's not very often in my life that someone is coming with like these really deep, tender questions that you just want to be like so gentle about. So for me, it was more helpful to have Ruthie model it and to picture her speaking to me rather than how I would want to speak to someone. Because for Ruthie, there's she's just this sweet, sweet soul, this sweet, sweet friend to herself. And so to picture the way she speaks to herself, her speaking over me, it would be things like, I see how tired you are. And I am so proud of you. Look at how you did this today and you did this. That is so good. That sure, it was it was one hour. And you have this story that you want eight hours, but let's just focus on that one hour. That was a good hour. Look at that beautiful thing that you wrote. And this task over here, I, I know you're, you're wanting to brush it off and say that wasn't that big of a deal, but that's been on your list for a while. That was creating weight. I'm so proud of you for creating the freedom of just getting that that off your list. I know you have such unkind thoughts about your body, but what if she didn't have to be smaller? What if she really was so comfortable and warm, welcoming, loving? She gives such good hugs. She's so cozy, just as she is. What if you nourished her? What would make her feel celebrated and appreciated? What would make her feel happy and delightful for you to eat tonight or for you to eat this weekend? And that might be, by the way, a delicious piece of cake, that that would make her feel really happy to not be in this place of restricting calories. Or it might be eating a piece of fish and and fresh veggies because that really feels nourishing in a different way. And I just think Ruthie models so well that kindness. And you might have that person in your life or that you follow on Instagram or the voice you can hear in their audiobook or in their podcast if there's someone really calming that you listen to. And so I hope that we can all notice our thoughts more in this season to come. Are we punishing ourselves? Are your thoughts about restricting something because you haven't done enough to deserve it? You didn't perform well enough. And what if instead you were so gracious and generous to yourself? 
Think about that phrase, generous to yourself. What would that look like if I'm being generous to myself? What would that feel like, whether that's food or rest or sleep or play? And remembering that you are the boss and you don't want to be under a dictatorial rule of someone that's just constantly telling you you can never measure up. You are your best friend. And you want the friend that constantly points out all the good things that you did and how proud they are of you. You're your own life coach where you want to notice, here's a limiting belief. Here's a repeating thought. Here's a negative thought that keeps coming up. You're your own pastor really ministering to how can you be more healed and healthy and whole. So be that kind of friend mother partner that is so sweet and supportive to yourself. And I think the silver lining benefit of this is when we're hard on ourselves, we're hard on others. So I think the more that we show compassion to ourselves, the more likely we are to show it to others. And the more that we can remove this narrative that we want to punish ourselves in some way instead of simply being generous and gracious with ourselves, so too will we act with those around us. Oh, wait. One more thing. Don't miss this. Before you go, love. P.S. Something I'm loving lately was the Harry and Meghan interview with Oprah. I asked on Instagram stories, I think like 85% of you said you were watching, so I feel like a lot of us have been clued into this. Um, A few things that stood out to me. Number one, I was very moved by her speaking about her suicidal ideation. If you have not heard episode one of this podcast, I will link to it in the description below, but I would really uh, recommend that you go and listen to that. I share that part of my own story, and I think that it is something that doesn't get shared that often, and it, it still feels uncomfortable to hear someone share it. Um... And I just thought she, I truly believe she saved some lives by someone who was struggling with those same thoughts, hearing her say that and realizing uh, they they weren't alone or or seeing her then go on to have her two beautiful babies and thinking, oh my gosh, I can't imagine if she hadn't been here for that, what's coming in my life in the next few years that that I want to be there for. The other huge takeaway was the reality of racism in the UK. And something that I didn't know was the time when Harry said 72 female members of parliament on both sides of the aisle published some sort of letter condemning the racist language against Megan and how much of the filter of her media coverage was that. And his point that that is when the family could have spoken up. And I, as you know, I'm not big on judgment and saying, oh, if I was them, I would completely have done this differently. But it did stand out to me that how powerful it would have been if the royal family had spoken out against racism and how many people in that country would have felt seen and honored, people who've experienced racism, who've experienced microaggressions. Um, and I think seeing the example that their the women in their government had spoken out 
was a, it was just so clear of like, okay, the opportunity was there. Maybe no one's ever done it before. Maybe this isn't something that monarchy normally speaks on, but we get to a point in culture where we don't want to be silent on something. It also stood out to me that it was the female members of parliament that did this. Um, I think that the awareness, I think because there was so much coverage of Megan that was so disparate from that of Kate, there were probably more women that were paying attention to those stories about whether or not they cradled their baby bump and whether they ate avocados and all these sorts of things. And there were probably more women picking up on those stories because I would imagine less men are maybe noticing those headlines. And that it stood out to the women and the women came together and it was bipartisan. It did not have – it was not political. It was the, the right thing to do. The third thing that stood out to me was uh, – the revelation that the palace hosts the holiday parties for these tabloids. And I think just better understanding the real deal with the devil <laughs> that the royal family has with those tabloids. And again, I say that with compassion. I don't say that judgmentally with arms crossed, like, well, they sure made a deal with the devil. Um, but it is uh, – I have compassion because I don't know how you change it. I – have compassion that I could imagine. It is terrifying to think your industry and your way of life is threatened, is changing. You could be obsolete. And that if they were to, to punish, so to speak, the tabloids by saying, we, we don't want to be in relationship with you if you post these things uh, if you speak this negatively, like, because honestly, when you think about it, and uh, the British tabloids, I think, as many of us here in America have learned over the last few years of this Kate and Meghan, uh, or rather Meghan experience, are are a gabillion times more vicious than those here in the U.S., which seems a little crazy to me. I would think that we would corner the market on uh, vicious tabloids, but apparently it is nothing by comparison. So to know that there are stories that are so vicious and yet you also want the positive coverage and so you don't condemn it and say, this is not how we treat other human beings. We are not going to monetize the clickbait of these, you know, horrible stories. And so for me, when I'm watching an interview like this, on the one hand, it's just fascinating, right, to get a look behind the curtain to understand someone else's life. But I also try to note what it teaches me. What takeaways can I apply to my own life that is not purely uh, observational about theirs, but also I'm getting out something out of it for myself. And my biggest takeaway was make sure you aren't making deals with the devil, that you own your independence. And I, by that, I mean the royal family. And realizing they they are in a hard spot that has been built up over the years as the as I'm sure what originally was a, a relationship with a quote unquote normal press <laughs> became tabloid fodder over the the years and that there really was never a shift that was made and even after things with princess diana there just wasn't that shift that was made and and I again I have compassion for the business model and for the brand, so to speak, that it feels very hard to get out of that now. And so I think for those of us in general, uh, especially those of us that are that are entrepreneurs or 
um, I don't know, just in general, thinking about that, am I ever in a position where I'm kind of obligated, you know, like I, I don't really believe this leadership document that my church is wanting me to sign, but I also don't want to not be allowed to serve at my church anymore. So am I going to sign this thing that I don't fully agree with everything that it says because I don't want to give up this other thing? But if I play that out down the road, am I ever going to have kind of pigeonholed myself to say like, I actually signed a piece of paper that I don't fully believe in. And is that going to come out later where someone's like, well, but you believe this. And you're like, I don't. And they're like, well, is this your signature on this? Like that happened to be a conversation I was having with a friend of mine. So I think that there's examples like that where it just encourages us to say, let's play this out. Where is this you know, going to go? And my other big takeaway was it only takes one person to break the generational story. But it may come with a great loss. So I think what we're observing with Harry is he is breaking a generational story that the world observed with his mother, that his mother went through so many things that her husband or ex-husband Charles didn't really help her with. And then Harry's wife was going through similar things. And again, the family wasn't really helping him. but. He chose to break free, take the strength of his wife, take the help financially of his late mother, and say, I I do not want history to repeat himself. But it's clear from the interview he's experienced a lot of loss in his his father and his brother. And um, I think that that is important to hear because I hear so many stories from you in my Instagram DMs about you know, cutting off relationships because there was because there was a narcissist who wasn't honoring boundaries, because your family did not believe that COVID was real. And so you haven't seen them in over a year because they aren't taking the same safety precautions and things that there is a loss when we sometimes when we stand up for what we believe is right and what we how we believe we need to protect ourselves or the people in our lives. And I thought that that was a very relatable story that a lot of people could understand. You may be the healthy one in your family, and that may be beautiful, and it also may be very lonely. And I think overall, just the reminder that humans are human. They can have immense privilege, as Harry and Meghan do, but that doesn't mean they are a drop more protected from anguish and grief and agony and fear. And so I think that we can honor privilege, and we've used that word so much in the last year in a really beautiful way to acknowledge the things that are much harder for someone else than they were for us. But I also believe we should never shame someone for struggling as though, well, you have it so good you can't possibly struggle. Because I think we we know that that isn't true. Anyone can experience grief. Anyone can experience fear or loss or agony. And I hope that more people who may have even had a preconceived judgmental idea about them were able to listen and say, I don't have to be huge fans of them, you know, in in general, but 
I do have empathy that racism is real. And as a white person, I cannot imagine that. I do have empathy that someone has thought about taking their life. And we see that that happens in celebrities and that happens in low-income neighborhoods. It isn't something that if you just get to a high enough level, you're going to be protected from that. And so I find something very human and relatable and connected in that that goes back to that beautiful adage of be kind for everyone is fighting a hard battle. Till next Wednesday.